<laughs> some points along the way. Uh, anyways, yes, Dr. Strain in the, in the multiverse of badness. So this is outpatient CHF. Um, I don't know. I think this is the only reason I do lectures so I can make a cool intro slide. Uh, I have a Marvel thing going. Maybe we'll see in future ones. I was going to do uh, going to do Stranger Things, but it didn't really. Maybe later. Anyways, moving on. Okay. So I just want you to learn about heart failure. That's about as far as I got on the objectives. So hopefully you learn something. That's my objective. All right. So what is heart failure? I think that it's one of those terms that kind of gets thrown around that maybe we don't fully understand. I don't know. It's a put down what Cecil said, what Harrison said. So First of all, it's a clinical syndrome, okay, and it's characterized by structural functional impairment of the filling of the actually. Um, we wanted to simplify it. Basically, the heart's not functioning properly and it's not able to pump blood to the rest of the body. I think that we kind of understand that. But whenever we're thinking about how to diagnose it, it's not quite as clear. It's been a long time trying to figure out how do we diagnose heart failure because some people have diastolic dysfunction, but they're asymptomatic. So is that heart failure? Is it not heart failure? Are there any kind of validated testing scores that you can do where you plug in numbers and comorbidities and risk factors? The answer is yes, but they're not really well validated. And so <clears throat> I posted this from the ACCAHA 2022 heart failure guidelines. If you have any questions, it's a bajillion pages. And I tried to summarize it for you guys. So that's basically what I'm trying to do here. But anyways, I got this whole list over here. I don't normally like to put a whole paragraph on a slide, but I just wanted you to see basically to diagnose, and this is specifically HFPEF and FMRF, whatever. The point is you have to have elevated filling pressures um, and that it's a clinical syndrome. So somebody has a problem with their heart, either the way that it's functioning or the way that structural uh, makeup is, and they have symptoms. And those together are heart failure. If you're, if it's not clear, because HFPEF can be a clinical or a clinical diagnosis, you can do so basically a right heart cath. That's like the last step that you would sure get a definitive diagnosis. And you do that by measuring the pulmonary and capillary ventral pressure. Okay. So why do we care? This is the why do we care slide. I didn't see the stat about it being the most common thing that people over 65 are admitted for. It's super common. Even though these are the 2022 guidelines, we just had a. But there's a, there was apparently less than a million people with heart failure, which that sounds not right. It sounds like, it seems like every patient I see has heart failure. Um, and apparently they're getting admitted more than once, which also sounds right. So, there is a decreasing incidence, so there's not as many people being diagnosed with it, but prevalence has gone up because the population is aging. It's something we're going to have to deal with for, for a very long time. Um, Hispanic patients a little bit less effective. So this is your bread and butter stuff. You see this a lot, okay? You're going to see heart failure all the time. Anytime I'm making fun of <laughs> not a patient. Just a presentation. Like they got diabetes and heart failure, blah blah blah. That's our that's our bread and butter. So this is something you have to know very well. And inpatient management is different. 
it's it's uh, it's different. You you care more about the acute stuff, and I think outpatient's more difficult intensity because you can't just hook up an IV and push IV Lasix with a Foley every six or eight hours, depending on which attending you have that week. So, <laughs> I'm an eight hour guy, by the way. So, anyways. Uh, yeah, it, so it's a little bit different and it's difficult because you have to work with people and you have to figure out how to prevent them from getting worse. And it's tricky. Outpatient medicine is really hard. So, common causes, right? So, if you can't remember the, the rest, remember these common causes of heart failure, more ischemic disease, and then had heart attacks, high blood pressure, and bowels. Yeah. You got that? Now let's move on to the strange causes. <laughs> uh, there's a pun. Okay. So this is like a full list of things that may cause it otherwise. So these are more like your zebras. Um, I want you guys to just take a second and just read through these because it's not always the common stuff. Like you need to know that. But the next step is thinking outside of what are the most common things. Whenever I see somebody that's got heart failure, is there something more to it? Pretty common. Heart rhythm related, somebody comes in, they have AFib with RVR, and they've got CHF, like which cause which? I don't know. We got treatment. So, anyways, that's a cause. Obesity, diabetes, that one's actually really common. But something else to think about is like, do they have any kind of rheumatologic disorder? Do they want to take therapy? Myocarditis. Um, that, that was a big topic for the last two years. And then peripartum cardiomyopathy. Yes, a couple. And I saw this once <laughs> All right. So I always got the classes and the stages mixed up. And so the NYHA, the New York Heart Association, it's a functional classification. If you think of it that way, I think it's easier to keep it straight. It's a functional classification, not just a class or a stage. So class one, no limitation in all physical activity. Two. Somebody's got mild symptoms, but um, mild symptoms only, and they're able to function normally, essentially. Class three is they have marked symptoms whenever they're trying to do their day-to-day -day stuff. And four is whenever they have symptoms of rest, okay? So basically, one is asymptomatic, two is mild, three is only get relief when they're at rest, four is they can't even get relief at rest. So that's functional, and that's good to know because it's going to decide what kind of treatment we need. This is the stage. So if you think of like staging cancer, it's not something that changes. Uh, it is what it is. Once they hit a stage, they don't go back to the other stage. So stage A is people that are at risk for heart failure. So they have high blood pressure and diabetes. They don't have any signs of heart failure. Um, stage B is like pre-heart failure, which I'd never heard of before, but, but it makes sense, I guess. Somebody that has changes, so if they think about somebody that's got some insulin resistance, but they don't quite have diabetes, that's kind of your pre-heart failure. You have somebody that has evidence of increased feeling pressures, they have some structural disease, or they have slightly elevated BMPs, that kind of stuff, but they don't have any symptoms yet, all right? Stage C is the people that we see. Those are the people that have heart failure on, that we can see on the echo um, or the biomarkers that we get, and they have symptoms. So. People start complaining about dyspnea, exertion, those kind of things. That's stage C. And stage D is advanced, so these people have problems all the time. Um, lots of hospitalizations despite being adequate medical. Okay, so this is stage, it doesn't change. 
and YHA classifications can change. You can have somebody that's stage C that's had symptomatic heart failure and they can become asymptomatic later. So they can go to MMPK stage one, or not stage one, class one. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. This is just to simplify it. Risk factors, heart damage with no CHF. Stage C is CHF symptoms. E is severe CHF symptoms. So just some diagnosis pearls. Try to throw these in here because these are the questions that I really want to know. Like, what is the role of BNP? I feel like nobody really knows. We just kind of order it and then we, we add it into this picture and try to figure out if somebody has heart failure or not. So it really is just a piece of the picture, okay? You're not gonna diagnose somebody with CHF based on a BNP. If it's a thousand, it really fits with the picture of CHF. Um, but then if you know somebody doesn't have it, I question why you ordered a BNP in the first place. And so, um, yeah, just a piece of the picture. And what you're trying to figure out from this is, is the dyspnea the patient's having, is it cardiac or is it non-cardiac? And so if it's more than 400, it's pretty consistent with CHF. It's not a slam dunk, but it definitely fits that picture. There are other things that cause it to go up. And if it's less than 100, probably not CHF, but you can't completely exclude it. And so I just kind of think of medicine as a bit of an artwork. And this just gives you a little bit more of the picture um, one way or the other. And sometimes if you order too many labs, it just muddies the picture and you have no idea what's going on. Only order the things that you really want to know. So you wouldn't order a B, a BNP alone without a clinical picture. If somebody's not having dyspnea or fatigue or swelling, you wouldn't really. And there, you know, the hot topic is do you get a BNP again once they're in the hospital or not? Like some people trend them. I don't trend them. That's not helpful. But there is some evidence that if you get a pre discharge BNP, um, if the patient's ready to go, they're ready to go. But it could be a strong predictor of readmission. And so I don't think. I would hold up a discharge based on a BNP, but it would make me think twice if to see if they're really not congested anymore. Sometimes people, you know, they just, what just happened? Anyways, sometimes people, they can hold a lot of fluid and they don't, I mean, they just look like they're always swollen, but it can actually be a little bit more uh, CHF symptoms. So, you're a BNP before discharge. And it hasn't gone down a whole lot, you know, that can be an indicator that they're going to be a strong candidate for you. Bet it wasn't me this time. Okay. Not really good at this. So just uh, I'll just keep talking. You guys don't need to see this part. So some other diagnosis pearls are exam. So high sensitivity stuff. So things that you're going to see in people with CHF are going to be dyspnea on exertion and fatigue and weight gain. If you're not seeing those things.
<laughs> it's on. Now I just started the video. Really good. As I was saying, yeah, he walks you through it. Oh, he But initially, I can sign into search. That's the only thing I know to do. That's only thing I know to do. Okay, so high sensitivity stuff, things you're going to see with people at CHF. They're going to have trouble with dyspnea. They're going to have fatigue and weight gain. Not fatigue, weight gain. They're supposed to be a comma. Yeah. <laughs> this is on the signs, okay? Uh, things that are specific, if you're seeing PMD or orthopnea, whenever you actually look at the patient and do an exam, you'll see JVD. Uh, it's really specific, but it's not sensitive, so it's not always there. Sometimes people are like 400 pounds and you can't see their neck veins. It doesn't mean they don't have CHF. But if you see it, it's pretty specific for it. Um, and then the other thing, the echo for all you ultrasound nerds, if the IVC is more than 2.1 centimeters and it doesn't collapse at least 50%, that's pretty specific for CHF. Yeah. Uh, the initial workup, um, this is straight from the, the guidelines. Uh, basically, once you, once you have a suspicion for it and once you get the, you're gonna order an ultrasound and after you get the ultrasound, it's the picture, so you see problems with the structure or the function or the bowels, and you have the clinical syndrome, then you have CHF, and you're going to try to figure out why they have CHF. And I think that that's something I never really did a good job of. I would focus more on how to make them get rid of their CHF. 
Um, but you need to know why they have it. So this is just a pretty basic group of labs that you're going to get. So <clears throat> iron panel is helpful to look at things like hemochromatosis. You're going to look at hypothyroidism, obviously, with the TSH. Uh, urinalysis, you can look for proteins. Then you're going to get an EKG, and the chest X-ray helps look for uh, cardiomyopathy and any kind of congestion. So just pretty, pretty basic. I'm not going to spend time. All right. So, so uh, anyway, fifty-seven year old obese male. He comes to your office. He's got dyspnea exertion and PND. So which one of those symptoms is specific? PND. The other one is. He knows he has some legs for like the last few months. Weight keeps going up. He's got fatigue waking. Um, mild symptoms with exertion. And he's got a 50 pack year smoking, family history, CAD, and high fall diet. So he's got some risk factors. That's what I'm pointing out. And so in your mind, you have a pretty strong suspicion for CHF for this guy. So what workup would you guys like to get? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of those claps that I had just a second ago. Um, Test x-ray. Chem 8. Iron panel. Yes. Okay. I'm hearing them all in piecemeal. Yeah. What? Good fourteen. CBS. Yes. All right. Now. Reinhardt. Test x-ray. Reinhardt. I know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then besides the lab, what other things are you going to consider getting? Yeah, an echo. So initially, I, I would I would start with an echo. I would get all the labs because in this in this scenario, you're thinking this guy's got CHF. He's got risk factors. He's got all the other stuff. But um, initially, you you could start with an echo if you're going to do this piecemeal. And then once you have your diagnosis, because you know echo doesn't make your diagnosis for you. But it certainly is hard to make it without, without it. That's part of the component. It's a structure and function of the heart muscle. So once you have your diagnosis, you can get the chest x-ray in the labs, um, possibly a stress test. I mean, it, it just depends on how high your concern is that this is an ischemic cardiomyopathy. So if he came to your office and he didn't have any chest pain right then, would you get an EKG like on the other? Oh. Yeah, because I would want to see like, is there... Um, ventricular hypertrophy. Um, is there something else going on here? Yeah, atrial enlargement, those kind of signs. I mean, EKG is helpful to for more than just to rule out chest pain. <clears throat> so echo shows an LVEF of 40%. So how would you classify as heart failure? I'm not talking NYHA. I'm not talking about stages. What, what would your diagnosis be? Mr. Ref. Mr. Ref. Tefref. Yeah. Here's why. So I, this is like one of my favorite questions to ask whenever I'm on here. Uh, there's a lot of stuff. I will quiz you guys on this at some point besides today. I don't know why, but uh, this just comes up all the time. I think it's good to know what we're dealing with. The pathology is a little bit different. So it's Tefref if it's 40 or below. Yeah, this splitting hairs. Yeah. If he was 41%, he'd have Hef Mr. Ref, which I'm going to start calling it that. That's good. <laughs> um, and then if 50% and above, it's Hef Pef. And that's treated completely different. And then if you guys look, there's all these little things in between, like uh, the mid-range ejection fraction or mildly reduced, if that helps you remember, it's 41 to 39. 
And then there's even like improved ejection fraction for somebody that was FRF, it was about 40%. So there's a lot of nomenclature and they are treated a bit differently. Okay, so now what ACC AHA stage is this guy? He's C. Yeah, so he's C because he has symptoms, but he's not like in stage yet. Right. What about NYHA functional classification? Why is he three? Significant. Two. He's better with rest. Yeah, so he's not he's not symptomatic at rest. I don't think so. He said he has mild functional, like he's mild, mild symptoms with exertion. So he's actually two. I'm not going to split hairs if you say two or three. I don't care. As long as you know that the four is all the time. Yeah. So anyways, yeah, so he's a class two. He had mild symptoms. That's just like the perfect picture of mine. He came in like that. I would get an EKG. And I would I probably would send him for a stress test. But anyway, so what is your plan to treat this FREF? Yeah. Heard it. What does GDMT stand for? Direct. Guideline directed. Oh, That's my other favorite question. <laughs> you remember one thing. <laughs> we will be going over guideline directed medical therapy. If you remember nothing else from this lecture, like this is this is the meat of the lecture. And I've got like 15 minutes, so we're gonna get on it. Okay. All right. So step one is Arnie. Have you guys heard of these before? Presto, say sacubutral, valsartan, whatever floats your boat. I don't care. Anyways, it's an angiotensin receptor uh, blocker and nephrolysin inhibitor. So these people are going to have an elevated BMP because nephrolysin helps to be helpful for the body. It's not like it's something that's really bad for us. It's just a marker that we use, but it also um, helps with diuresis and things. So you put them together, and it's goodness what happens. It has decreased hospitalizations and mortality associated with it. 20% more than AIDS. The problem is it's it's uh, what we should be reaching for for people that uh, have HEFREF. I'm just going to specifically talk about HEFREF, by the way. HEFREF is its own thing. And just to make a note of that, now they're recommending, I just looked on up to date today, SGLT2 inhibitor like Jardians and spironolactone. Start the Jardians first, two weeks later, add the spironolactone. Okay. Um, you can use an Acer and ARB if somebody can't afford an Arnie or for some reason they can't be on it, or like hypotension. And then you can use Bidil uh, if, if you can't tolerate any of the above. So Bidil is a hydralazine with the dinitrate. It also has increased hospitalization and mortality benefit. Second thing, beta blocker. There's only three, and you have to know these because these will come up on boards and things. Asoprolol, carvedilol, and metoprolol um, succinate. These are the ones that you need to know. These are the only ones that have decreased hospitalization mortality benefit. So if somebody has CHF and they're on metoprolol tartrate, are you going to switch them over? Hopefully, yeah, unless there's a reason you can't. But um, yes, you should switch them over. If they're a blank slate, you're going to reach for one of these and it's going to be awesome. So decreased hospitalizations, mortality with these two. Um, and the goal is to start these before somebody goes home from the hospital. 
So this is something we can be on the lookout for. If you have somebody that comes in new onto CHF and you get to do guideline directed medical therapy, like you can put them on this before they come to the clinic and look like a really good doctor. Next is your spironolactone. Also has decreased hospitalizations and will cause mortality. So, so far all of these have had decreased hospitalizations and mortality. Uh, it's indicated for people that are symptomatic. So there's really like an initial therapy. So basically everybody that's got HEFRAF is going to get an ARNI, an ACE or an ARB, whichever one of the three they can get, and a beta blocker. So that's going to be first line. You're going to put both of those on. And then if they're still symptomatic after that, then you're going to have spironolactone. Reasons you wouldn't are if their kidneys aren't working well and they have hyperkalemia. That's what, that would not work. And you can use a plerinone if they have gynecomastia. Moving on. So sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitor and SGLT2 inhibitor, um, guardians, and Farsiga. Decreased hospitalizations and cardiovascular mortality. Um, you don't have to be on, they don't have to have diabetes to start these. Two years ago, I heard a podcast, and I feel like I say that all the time because I listen to a lot of podcasts, but anyways. Uh, they were just saying that these are going to be known as heart failure medicines more than diabetes medicines in the coming years, and that seems to be true. So in my mind, they're really for heart failure, but you can also use for diabetes. All right, so this is like a gold slide. This is something that uh, you can save on your phone later, but when you're doing the dose titration, remember, you're going to start with an ARNI, ACER, and ARB, and you're going to add a beta blocker. One of these three beta blockers right here because they have mortality and hospitalization benefits. And you're going to start on one of these initial doses and your target dose is over there. So, so it goes up pretty, pretty high. This one kind of caught me off guard. I didn't realize that was the target dose. But for somebody with mifepristone succinate, you're going to start at like 25 a day because it's just once a day and you're shooting for 200. That's a big jump. I don't want you guys to be afraid to do that as long as their heart rate and their blood pressure is tolerating it because that's the goal that we're shooting for. Next, additional medications. So um, I have never started the Babardine. I have stopped it. But, um, it's indicated for people that have pretty bad HFRF, they're still symptomatic despite all the other four medicines. You'll notice there's like four letters in GDMT. There's also four drugs. That's how I remember it. I don't know. You guys don't like acronyms. Anyways, um, and then if you're if you're still symptomatic despite goal-directed medical therapy, you've titrated the beta blocker up all the way, and the heart rate's still more than seventy. That would be when ibuprofen is in Dioxin is symptomatic; it's for symptomatic as well. Um, decreases hospitalizations, not mortality. That's the question that came up on the test. And then this other one that I've never heard of. It's got to be a brand name for that. I don't know what it is. Um, Let's see it. I'm not going to try to say it. <laughs> Anyways, it increases CGMP, which helps with remodeling fibrosis. I would leave that to cardiology if that were me, but I just want you guys to know that there's stuff like this out there. It also helps with death and hospitalization. Okay, so to summarize what I just said, you're going to start an ARNI, if all possible, and you're going to increase that to a moderate dose, and then you're going to start a beta blocker. You got to remember which one. One of those three, and then you're going to titrate that one to target, and then you're going to come back and titrate the RNA all the way. That's what 
whatever they said to do. That sounds reasonable to me. I don't think you have to do it that way. That's not in the ACCHA guidelines, but that's the approach on it today. And I think that sounds pretty reasonable. You get one in a moderate effect, then you add the other one and trade it up, then you come back and finish the other two. So that's the initial therapy. If you have persistent symptoms on those two, because you're gonna start those on everybody, unless there's a contraindication, then you would add spinal lactone. And then after that, you have the GLT2. You don't have to add the SGLT2 if you have symptomatic. You have to add the spiral lactone if they're not symptomatic. But therapy, secondary therapy. So diuretics, they improve symptoms, not mortality. Um, I don't know if that's the case because if people didn't have them, they would really die faster. Um, sleep diuretics are preferred. So that's like Lasix, torsamide. Pearl, something we were getting at earlier, torsamide's absorbed better by the gut. So if somebody is constantly volume overloaded, you would use torsamide instead of Lasix, it's going to be absorbed better. You could add metolism, which is something I've never done. Um, but now this wants me to, I, I want to <coughs> start add metolazone if they're on like high dose of loop diuretics. You just got to watch your electrolytes. Here is the dose for that. Um, I didn't know you could go up to 600. <laughs> <laughs> sure this was straight from the ACCHA. Torsamide can go up quite a bit too. Metolazone. So, anyways, we can send this out to you guys afterwards. So other things that you can do that aren't just medicines. So anybody that's got NYHA class two or three, you can send them to heart failure. I had no way to send people, but now I do. So there, two or three, you can send them early. Where is the referral for that located? Is it like cardi cardiology heart failure? I'd have to look. I think, I mean, my tab is a little bit different, but there's like a referral orders where you have like all of the home health stuff. And I think it's somewhere towards the bottom of that. I think so. I'd have to look for it. There, oh, is this on the discharge order set? Yeah, there is. Yeah. But outpatient, I'd have to look. Outpatient, outpatient. I just sent one at lunch. Uh, it's like the third box down uh, the top option. Yeah, rehab outpatient is what it's like. So if somebody's symptomatic, um, especially like class three, I think that I'd send them. Class two, I don't know, but you can. Um, don't forget to tell people to stop smoking. I think that I see it so much and don't do it all the time. Uh, but yeah, people should really stop smoking and they should stop drinking alcohol. It's not good for them. You know, we're, we're all about um, stopping sodium. And I tell people all the time, do less than two grams a day. But really, this more recent studies have shown that if you do just shoot for less than three grams, you're not really like aiming for a really restrictive goal. It might actually be harmful. Um, I don't know why it's harmful. I didn't give them what it was. But you don't want to have a lot either. So I think three grams, it gives people something to pay attention to, make sure that they're not eating a whole bag of chips. Fluid restriction is probably not super helpful except for people that are like in, in stage and those people should be on a fluid restriction. Don't forget that these people that um, are really sick, if they're stage D, don't forget about palliative care. Um, people that have palliative care are well taken care of if they're headed that way anyways. And they actually live longer. And then finally, a heart transplant. We tried to do this once in the hospital and they declined it. But it is an option.
Yes, Victoria. They have to be a certain stage or class to qualify for palliative. Or I would assume D. I don't know if it's C or D, but I would think that anybody that's wanting to talk about it, it's probably advanced, like in stage. I would assume D. Okay, and then there's ICD placement. I, I hate this so much because I feel like there's, if you're less than 35%, but you're uh, functional classification two or three, and if you're less than 30, but you're one, like just know that, that uh, you're gonna start gold-directed method therapy, symptoms and see if somebody needs an ICD. Basically, these people are at higher risk for sudden cardiac death because of arrhythmias, because of their cardiomyopathy. And so you, you know, if somebody's got an EF of 15, we know that we're probably going to do like a life vest before they leave the hospital because they're very high risk to just go into um, attack and die. I put these up here. I have to look these up all the time. But these guys need to be with cardiology. Cardiology should be managing this, but I, I want us to know what to do also. Um, then if it's non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, basically if their EF is 35% or less and they're still having significant symptoms, um, they might need an ICD. And if they have things like hokum and ketosis. Okay. This is just a summary slide that I'm not going to spend any time on, but there is kind of a stepwise stepwise uh, wide process. EDMT, they evaluate to see if they need an implant and then potentially palliative care if they might be better once we get to that. Okay, so one of the guideline directed therapy is EF improves to 50%. What is his heart failure? Heart failure with improved ejection fraction. Okay, so people that had reduced ejection fraction and get better, which is the goal, they don't have reduced ejection fraction forever, they have improved ejection fraction. So how would you change your management? You never got in there? Yeah, you wouldn't change it. Mm -hmm. So just keep doing, if it's not broke, you don't need to fix it, right? So just keep doing what you're doing. Um, so there is kind of like this middle of HEF, Mr. F, and HEF, MF. Uh, treated, basically, they're treated the same as HEF, REF. Okay. Not a whole lot to think about that. The evidence is weaker for treating them with guideline-directed medical therapy, but you're still going to do the, uh, the RD and the beta blocker and then move on to the spiral axone and add the SGLT2. Even in the improved ejection fraction, even if they become asymptomatic because you fix them that well, you would still continue the medicine. Okay, so in summary, heart failure is a clinical diagnosis. You have a function structure issue plus symptoms, it makes heart failure. Um, don't forget to evaluate why people have heart failure. Uh, don't forget the strange etiologies. That's kind of like next level stuff to think about, but I think that we should all be aiming for that. Um, there's four medicines for guideline-directed medical therapy. I've gone over them ad nauseum, but just to point out the all-cause mortality um, benefit is like 73% if you use all four treatments. So it's, it's significant. It's something we, we want to make sure we're using on these people. Um, and just remember all four drugs reduce hospitalizations and diuretics do not improve mortality, but they help with symptoms. And don't forget the other things we can do. Disciplinary appropriate controls to cardiology. And then ICDs may be indicated for people that are still having symptoms with that heparin. References. Okay. Questions you guys got? Yes, Victoria. How do you refer to cardiology? 
I, I reform pretty early. I mean, they're so handy here. If I was a roll doc, it might be a little different, but if somebody's got an EF less than 40, I generally send them there because, I mean, I guess it depends on the reason too. If there's any concern for ischemic cardiomyopathy, like they're, they're probably gonna need ischemic evaluation. And so I refer them to card cardiology then. And I think that those people probably would do better with cardiology because they have the heart failure clinic and they're just being monitored all the time and uh, they'll stay on them. It's just like another person to come help us. Would I feel comfortable doing this? Like if I was a rural doc, probably, and somebody couldn't go to cardiology, but I think the appropriate thing to do where we were at is probably get them to cardiology if they have pet breath and they need a guideline for it. And then also, how often do you do echoes? Like, do you only do it when there's like a clinical change of symptoms? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things the guidelines brought up that I didn't include because there's just a whole, I mean, there's hundreds of pages. And so there's a lot to go through. One of the things I did see though, is that you don't necessarily need an echo like every year, but if there's a change in clinical status or there's a concern that the injection correction may have changed, then yes. If you make the diagnosis in clinic, would you start them on any meds before you Which one would you start with? Yeah. Try to get people in Tresto. I don't think it's going to happen for a while. I actually have a patient who's in a Tresto farm rep, and he gave me some stuff. And I wish. <laughs> he gave me a card for like assistance or something. And so that's over by my desk tomorrow. I need to look at it and see what it's like. We should be trying to get people on a Tresto if they can. I don't want to break the bank. All you can do is lysinopril or Rosart to do it. That's great. So let's say they're not really symptoms. Like once you start them on the GDMT medicines, they're doing really well, but they're not at their max dose. Like how often do you try to trade them up to their target? Something I haven't done is I'm like, oh, they're doing good. I, I wouldn't adjust it. But I think that knowing this, I think I would try to adjust them even if they're doing okay. I don't know the right answer for that but I think that you want to titrate them up to the target. But if they start having symptoms, like especially adverse symptoms, so like if blood pressure starts to drop, <laughs> heart rate starts to get too low, I wouldn't push it, but I think that it might be nice to be like, okay, they tolerated this, let's try to go up. Uh, that, that Rylander will say, like titrate it up until their blood pressure is too low or their heart rate is too low. Yeah. I think that's what I see the cardiologists do. And sometimes they go like, Really, low. like the heart rate's fifty. They're like increase the beta block. Every three months, or like how often? Yeah, I think initially it said every like two weeks you reassess and you try to go up, but I don't think that that's evidence based. That's just kind of like what their recommendation was. So I think that we need to see these people more than every three months initially. And once we're titrating, and once they get to a good place, then we can back off. Because remember, you're gonna have to check the potassium some lab work while you're adjusting the RNA um, or even the A's. So you want to keep an eye on it and then gotta watch their heart rate and stuff too, their blood pressure. So I would say every two to four weeks, depending on how compliant the patient is and how well 